excited to have Martin Gutman with us. So welcome, Martin. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So Martin is the professor at Lucerne University of Applied Sciences and Arts in Switzerland and the author of The Unseen Leader. Before we get into how we connected and the book, etc., I just wanted to read um, a quote about the book. And I think you can tell me if I'm wrong. I think it was Adam Grant that put it quite nicely about your book. And it said, a provocative look at what history teaches us about leadership. And correct me if I'm wrong, that's why we connected in the first place. I know we were, were both authors on the same publisher. I mean, to be fair, I, I'm, I'm saying author tongue-in-cheek. I've written one chapter, whereas you've actually written a proper leadership book. So, And we obviously connected in terms of where, where we see leadership. Um, and the book itself what we really loved about it was the fact that it actually went into the history and it righted some wrongs, so to speak. And me being from the UK, I was actually chuckling quite a lot because I know there's, you know, before we get deep into the history, the colonialism of it and the fact that these leaders are always put on a pedestal and dare I say, they're always men of a certain type, you know? They usually are, aren't they? Yeah. No, you, you're, you're right. Thank you for that lovely uh, introduction. Um, in, indeed, it was uh, Adam Grant who had those very nice words to say about the book. And uh, yeah, I, I don't know if you read my work first or I read yours first, but that's how we got connected. And it's, it's great to have a conversation about that. So let's get into the book a little bit, if it's okay. You mentioned, uh, I mean, one of the most famous leaders in terms of polar expeditions was Shackleton, right? And if you remember, I sent you a message, was it a couple of months back? We were in transit in the UK, no? Yeah, and we saw a new book, another leadership book about Shackleton, putting him on a pedestal and saying how great he was and all of this stuff. And then it's interesting, I've just read your book. And then off the back of that, I was like, okay, that's just not true. I mean, it, not true. It's it's a bit of a, you know, there's there's room for interpretation here. But yes, I would argue, and I do argue in my book that uh, he is the wrong leader or the wrong he's the wrong person to profile in a book about leadership. If you want to read about an exciting, near death, dramatic experience, a la Hollywood, then he's your guy. Uh, so. Not taking anything away from the the drama in his life and his story. Um, no, and and why do I say that? I think the you know he's well known for the endurance expedition set off in 1914. The ship was frozen in place, and he and his men had to brave some pretty scary and harrowing uh, months before they made it back to safety. Uh, and, and certainly there, I think, once in that crisis, he displayed uh, some, some real good leadership qualities. But I still say he's not the right person to learn from, because if we look at his career, you know, he, he went to the Antarctic four times. Every time was a failure and a near catastrophe or a catastrophe. 1907, similar story. Very lucky that they made it away alive. During the endurance expedition, there was a second ship. This is rarely talked about in all the books that celebrate him, the Aurora. Even graver crisis, three people died there. Uh, and so, you know, his, his track record is not 
the type that that I would say we need to know what this guy was doing right because he was clearly doing many things wrong. Uh, and so I contrast that with Roald Amundsen, who I think we don't even have to think about polar expedition per se. If you look in any field, I don't think there's anybody who was so dominant the way he was in polar exploration. If we look in sports or anything else, like nobody can touch his record of leadership and record of, and of success in polar exploration. So if we want to learn from somebody, that's the guy. So it's curious, isn't it? Why, why we don't talk about him when it comes to leadership and expeditions? Uh, why do we talk about Shackleton? So I think there's, there's many different ways to study leadership, right? And a lot of the contemporary leadership studies and theories are quite sophisticated and quite nuanced. But there's also a very widespread methodology, if we can call it that, of extracting lessons from historical characters. And I feel like there we have this bias, I call it the action fallacy, that when we, when we look back to pick out a leader to profile in history, we kind of lose all this nuance, nuance that we have when we're looking around the world today, and we go for the guy, and usually it is a guy mm-hmm. who just had the most dramatic circumstances and made the most noise and was the most action-oriented. Even if, as is the case for Shackleton, you know, the reason there were so many dramatic circumstances is because uh, they were self-inflicted. Right? In Amundsen, we kind of have the opposite. He's, if you read his, his diaries and you read about his expeditions, it's actually pretty boring reading because it worked out exactly the way he planned it. And there were some, obviously some things uh, turned out differently. You know, he had to think, think on his feet. But even then, you know, he made good decisions based on his research and based on his very authentic leadership style that also involved the input and the strengths of the people he was traveling with. And so his trips were pretty unremarkable except that they were successful yes yeah, so it looks like this human need for entertainment and 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 living some excitement through the stories uh yeah but then also it, it, mm-hmm. go ahead sorry no i was just thinking also you know who was writing stories and and women at the time were not um uh, well, they couldn't do much, could they? They, they? they were not even allowed to be educated most of the time. So um, it does make sense that we portray characters that look like us, well, people who are writing it, but then also, as Peter said in the beginning, it's the, it's the British colonialism at the time, and who is louder, who is more prominent, who yeah. publishes more, and all of that, yeah. Exactly. But Mira, I think you bring up a really interesting parallel point, which is that I, I think we have this, this bias, this action fallacy. We like the people who made the most noise, the best stories, the most mm-hmm. Hollywood-esque characters. But you're also right that um, you know, both Amundsen and Shackleton were white men, so there we choose the one who was the, more, the most action-oriented of the two when we should be looking at Amundsen. But overall, the problem with history, as you say, is that um, we don't have such a detailed written record for a lot of the people who lived and a lot of people who influenced the course of history. So there's a lot of 
know, great leaders among, um, say, enslaved communities and among women uh, in, in various movements in various regions of the world, where I'm convinced we could write really compelling leadership case studies, but there's just not the material there for us to do that with. So that is the problem. You have to work with what you have, and usually it is the, the white guys who wrote down everything they were, they were doing, and therefore it's easier to go back and trace their lives and their decisions. Mm. Yeah, most, mo most of the times they were the ones who could write. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Well, talking about women in leadership, I really loved how you shared uh, the experience of Gertrude Bell and her wonderful leadership, but it was also a challenge for her because she wasn't really put in the positions of power, so to speak. However, behind the scenes, she was pushing all the buttons. And I would classify her as definitely the female version of Lawrence of, Ala of Arabia. However, I would probably call her Gertrude of Arabia, right? Because it sounds like from, you know, from the history that she was much, a much better leader, had much more respect. I'll read a quote from the book that you shared, which is brilliant. It said, uh, if the women of the English are like her, the men must be lions. Can you expand on that a bit? <laughs> Yeah, so that was, uh, you know, a, a saying that preceded her. That was her reputation in the region. And uh, no, as you've already suggested, this is another uh, period in history, so not, or, or realm of history, not polar exploration now, but this very complex, very, um, you know, muddled time right after, during and, and after the First World War, when the Middle East is essentially a playground for various European powers, and you have an emerging um, Arab nationalism as the the Turkish Empire is is retreating and then defeated in the First World War. So everybody's vying for influence here. And the man we remember from this period in this region, as you say, is Lawrence of Arabia, a bit of a Shackleton guy, you know, loved riding camels with with swords and guns in his hand. So great stories very action-oriented. But he himself acknowledged that the person most responsible, and there really isn't one person, but the person most responsible for kind of enabling and launching uh, a capable uh, Arab state, which was, was e Iraq, was the first to, to emerge uh, in that sense, was Gertrude Bell, who was um, working in, in various roles in the British um, um, administration and uh, knew, knew all the players, spoke all the languages, and uh, you know, facilitated all the important meetings, always kind of behind, behind the scenes. So she, she was a fun, a fun one to, to, to research and, and try to understand. Sources come into play there too. She wrote a lot. She wrote a lot of letters to her, to her family, to her father, and those are all archived. And, uh, and based on those, you can get a really nice glimpse into her day-to-day -day life and how she made decisions. Mm. Well, there seems to be a recurrent... Sorry, were you going to say something? Go on. Sure. No, no, go on. There seems to be a recurrent pattern in this type of, of leader where it is subtler, it is quieter. And that's the challenge, right? Because if you're not this loud self-promoter or you're not coming from a position of power or you've already got the money, you know, you've, you've just inherited that, you know, you, it's part of your, your, your DNA. 
it's going to be difficult because that's not something that's important to you. And correct me if I'm wrong, Gertrude didn't have time for that because she, she already had the power and respect behind the scenes. She didn't really have a need to self-promote, but that's the challenge. She wasn't thinking ahead into history and thinking, well, if I don't self-promote, no one will ever give me the respect I needed. She was just busy being a great leader. So maybe that's a good segue into, you know, how do we as subtler and quieter people, and, and let's be honest, the people with most impact are usually those type of people. How do they get recognized in the world of leadership and in the world of business? And how can they develop and adapt to be noticed and have it have more impact? It's a great question. And I think it's a really necessary question. Um, there's, you know, so I wrote about this from a, from a historical perspective. Why do we celebrate certain historical leaders and not others? Um, but there's a lot of contemporary research that essentially underpins what you're saying, which is that um, the people who act more and look more like our stereotypical leaders will also be perceived as the leaders and as the people whom we should credit for the successes of our teams and organizations. So a study I love is by uh, Neil McLaren of Binghamton, who found that whoever speaks the most, regardless of what they say, is perceived as a leader in that situation. Right? So what, what do you do if you are actually you know, let's say profoundly responsible for successes, you foresee things, you lay the foundations, you're making the right decisions, but nobody notices you. That is a great question. And, and now we're not in the realm of history. Now we're in the realm of, you know, executive coaching these days. So maybe, maybe you two have better suggestions there, there than I do as to what one should do. Yeah. No, it's it's interesting because I think that's the exact direction where I wanted to go with the question. So I uh, I'll just add to it. The you know what it looks to me. It looks to me that then even leaders who are who are very good in what they do and um, not so much self promoting, they think that they have to self promote. They think to that they have to. Um, uh, they have to be different in order to be able to do their job and be respected. And this is where they maybe lose their power because mm. they spend, you know, I, I'm not sure, but if these people from history that we were talking about spend more time self-promoting, maybe they wouldn't be as good as they were. They wouldn't be spending their energy uh, on on things that they were doing. and so. I think now it's probably, you know, responsibility on us to, to you know, I used to talk about it as a change of paradigm in leadership. Paradigm isn't changing. Leadership is leadership, is, is how we actually start seeing it for what it really is, not what we thought it was. And, uh, and then people will uh, hopefully be able to recognize these real values and, and, and build those things within themselves. But also, uh, so as a society, but also uh, leaders should, should, should be comfortable being who they are, really. Yeah, and I, I, I guess they should be comfortable being who they are. And then you also need to adopt to what your goals are and the situation you find yourself in. If you work for an organization in which um, people are aware of the contributions you're making, 
even if you don't look and behave like um, Ernest Shackleton, then there's no need to self-promote. If, on the other hand, you are a really gifted leader, you do this work behind the scenes, but you're not being recognized and it's necessary for you to advance, then yeah, maybe you have to also self-promote on the side. And and you know what also we've noticed in, in when coaching leaders is that they are uncomfortable around it. They are, um, it needs to be a little bit of, you know, it feels like imposter. It feels like, uh, who am I too? Because they don't see themselves as anything special. They're just really good at doing jo- their job. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and so there is this changing or actually seeing themselves in a different light that automatically then makes them more visible to uh, people around them. That's what I've noticed, at least. We've got one example. I think it was our first um, privately run leadership development program. Was it back in 2020? Yes, yeah. COVID happened, actually. And one of our wonderful delegates, she said, in the group, because we were sharing stories and, you know, what, what our take on leadership, I think it was quite early on in, in the program. And she said, you know, I'm not really going to get into a position of power, into a proper leadership role, because I am too quiet. I'm careful. I'm considered, you know, I like to process and reflect on stuff. And then we were like, hmm, okay. We were like, you know, let's explore this. Is this really true? And to fast forward into the future, this person's already been in leadership roles multiple since. Yeah. since yeah. And, uh, wow. she, she realized that she could, as, as Mira was talking about before, you know, it always looks like you cannot be yourself. You almost have to yeah. be inauthentic and yeah. shout above, you know, shout louder than the person in the room. Otherwise, you won't be considered. Yeah, There is another take on it. But I do agree with what you said, Martin. You can be quiet and considered and listen to understand and be that same person in the room. But there is also some groundwork and you still have to take action behind the scenes, cultivate and develop relationships. Otherwise, quite honestly, you will be left aside, you know? But it doesn't mean that you have to change and wear a mask to come into work because I don't know about you two. I tried that very early on in my career and it really wasn't a good fit. It was an absolute disaster. Because I couldn't be who I was, and it just felt like wearing someone else's weird wonky shoes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. quite too much um, energy, you know. No, I, I, I can, uh, I can see that. I, I have not tried that myself. I wasn't uh, in in leadership roles uh, earlier in my career, anyway. So I, I had no opportunity to to play around with that. Um, I mean, I think a bit of it is is situational too, right? It's it's not to say that, you know. A responsive, action-oriented, loud style is always wrong. I mean, if your house is on fire or the equivalent in your business, um, sitting around and thinking about it might not be the right thing to do. So I think leaders need to have a broad toolkit and apply it accordingly. I think it's just to say that the person who was always shouting the loudest and always reacting and always waving their arms around, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that they are the um the person who's making the best decisions here and really driving the success of this team or organization it just looks that way mm-hmm. yeah, and it's and it, lots of it is is driven by um by ego isn't it we were just reading um uh adam grant's new book uh yeah. where he sorry 
hidden potential. Yeah, yeah yes, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. And and where he talks about learning, and and we see our ability to learn, especially when you're a leader, and, and adjust, and uh, is really really important leadership. I wouldn't call it a skill, but yeah, leadership attribute, I guess. Yeah. And, um, and so, uh, and one of the things the things that he points out is that the only thing that really gets in the way of learning and being proactive is ego. That's a that's a great insight. I think that's yeah. spot on. Yeah. It, it doesn't allow us to see our mistakes. It doesn't allow us to grow. It doesn't allow us to change our mind. It's it's very pro- it has a really protective role uh, yeah. to be think we are versus you know and then and then it stops us from growing and and so it's really uh, uh, you know for what we thought the leadership is it was all about ego but what we are actually seeing um i mean it's not that ego is a bad thing it's just that it's it's really being aware of it and being more comfortable being vulnerable as a leader yeah i i think that you know my favorite leaders all combined humility with confidence and i mean i think to be a leader you you have to have a certain level of confidence in yourself and kind of also that things um decisions you've made were the right ones and and uh, uh you know if you question everything and are unsure all the time that's probably not a good state of mind for a leader to be in but i think that confidence has to be combined with humility um, on, on many levels, both that you, you know, as you say, you, uh, the ability to learn, the ability to self-reflect, but also the the awareness that on many questions or in many situations, you might not be the best placed person to make that decision or deliver that speech or whatever the case might be, but somebody else in your team is. So, I think combining those two uh, seems to be be key and. I think that's also a rarity, right? And maybe you two know more about this, but it seems like that's that can be hard to cultivate in equal measures. It's yeah. a challenge. I mean, we were just talking with a university about some workshops we were going to do about exactly that. It is an art, and sometimes people naturally fall into it, and they they can do it, and quite often they can't. They need to develop that skill or that experience of knowing when they don't know. You know, you don't know what you don't know. So, okay. If I don't know who is the best person in my team, who in my network could I reach out to and learn more about that? Maybe I could develop that skill. Maybe they could be a mentor to me or something like that. And we noticed that when we support early stage startups, for example, quite often there's a lot of, I don't know what I don't know, but then it's just that lack of awareness and no judgment. I was like that. We all have to start somewhere, but it's that challenge of, okay, when when is the right time to reach out and who can I speak to? And as Mira said before, that's where the ego comes in because it feels deeply uncomfortable to go, oh shit, I don't know what to do. Yeah. I'm clueless. Do I really want to share that with my team, with my co-founder? Because therefore I might look like I'm stupid. Right. And I, I think there's no escaping that, right? You said early on in your career, I think that's true for many people, but as you rise and and the teams you lead and the challenges you deal with get more complex you know you'll never or probably rarely be in the position where where you understand everything and you have all the answers to everything so i think getting comfortable with that is something uh 
you, you have to sooner or later, or uh, you'll get yourself into some trouble. Yeah, I think like all of the best leaders we, we you know, we've worked with or we see as to, you know, doing a great job and having impact, they're really comfortable just saying, you know, the, the older I get, the more mileage you get or the, you know, more senior I get. I just, I don't know a lot. It's not that they're stupid, right? It's just that they're really comfortable. Like, I don't know anything about this. Let's speak to the team. Let's, let's collaborate. Let's explore it together because I actually don't know about this topic, you know? And, and you know what? This is what I think is what we perceive as confidence. Mm. Yeah. It's that com- being comfortable. Yeah, that's nicely put. I, I would agree with that. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's brilliant how, um, it's really how much we are learning and I'm really happy about it. I'm hope I'm, I'm happy that we are rewriting history. Uh, a book <laughs> comes to mind of Stephen Fry. It was something similar uh, topic. But um, yeah, so w- one of the things that, that I was also curious about is, is, you know, many people write about leadership and, and connected with history. And, you know, we mentioned in the very beginning, but why did, what got you to do that? Like, what was the trigger for you to go in such a maybe um, not so, not so popular topic? It's it's you know you're taking you're taking a different perspective on it. You are you're looking into some different things when it comes to leadership. Something that it's not so mainstream. Still not mainstream, even though you know we do that, but it's not mainstream. So there are challenges there, and uh, and also. I mean, Peter as well. Peter is supporting women a lot, and it's in and talks about diversity and inclusion a lot. And he's a white guy, uh, middle aged, <laughs> and so <Right>. it is. is <laughs> and you it, still have a nice set of hair, though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't. I guess people can't see that, but well, mine's me. disappearing fast. Trust me. <laughs> and and so it is. You know, I'm always curious to why uh, you're obviously going somewhere where it's uncomfortable in a way. Uh, and to me, that's le- that's good leadership. Uh, but also, you know, I'm curious to why. Do you know? Yeah, I do. There, there's there's a background story to this. But uh, thank you for those those kind words. I don't I don't see it as as leadership, but but maybe that makes sense. Um, you know, going into an area that's not unexplored, but but uh, less explored for sure. I'm a historian by training. I got my PhD in history. And then through various quirks, as as many of us have it in our lives, I ended up teaching at uh, a business school, which I still do, different business school now. But that's been my my teaching and research career has been in management faculties of business schools. And so I, you know, very early on became exposed to the science and the dialogue and the hype around leadership. and. I realized that historians actually have a lot to say about leadership. Historians actually research leadership. They just don't use that word. Mm. Right? It's an entirely different set of vocabulary of jargon that's used among historians and among the organizational psychologists who study leadership in a management setting. But if you think about history, you know, it's really the question of um, how and why events unfolded the way they did and in answering that question it's it's always a question of how much did individuals contribute to the events unfolding this way and how much 
um, you know, was was steered by larger drivers, by structures in history, by economic trends, etc. Uh, but that's essentially history is the study of untangling, you know, the individual contributions and efforts and visions versus larger societal um, trends that were occurring. Um, so I felt like, you know, I'm actually pretty well prepared through my um, through my background to 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 say something about about leadership. And the other thing that I noticed early on when I started teaching at business schools was that this idea, as I already mentioned at the beginning of of this um, of of the podcast, this idea of finding modern leadership secrets in the stories of past leaders is really really popular. It's just that a lot of people who do it, not everybody, but a lot of people who do it, um, you know, are not trained historians and so come into it with a different set of assumptions and a different set of background knowledge about these events. And, and often they're just much more complex than they are in the Hollywood movies and, and the bestsellers. So I felt like there's an opportunity here for me as a, you know, trained historian to uh, look more critically at the types of leaders we profile uh, from from the past uh, to uh, to extract you know contemporary leadership lessons, and that was that was my motivation going into it. And um, anytime you know you're merging two disciplines, the potential for for insights is is huge. But you're also always entering a minefield because usually you know you can get in trouble with both disciplines essentially. For doing that, so but I, I haven't yet, so I'm happy I did that. I'm also senior enough that I can, you know, I, I don't have to be did. concerned oh. as I was earlier on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you were brave when you did it because we really enjoyed the book. In fact, it's one of the best ones we've read of late. So well done for that. And I'm actually, so we've heard. already used many of these examples with our clients. So thank you. Wow, I'm I'm so glad to hear that. That's great. Um, no, and that's why, as you know yourself, that's. The, one of the purposes of writing one is, you know, to get your own thoughts straight, but the other is to to share something with the world. And if that resonates, then that's uh, really one of the, the greatest feelings um, that you can have. So thank you for that. You're welcome. One of the other things we wanted to ask you about is you mentioned the busyness trap in your book. And it's something, well, it's a topic that Mira and I explore quite often with our clients, because whenever we work with a leadership team, any team for that matter, or individual leaders, the first thing we do is slow them right down because there's a massive, you know, this whirlwind of busyness. In fact, quite often when we're doing strategy events, it, it's quite uncomfortable for the leadership team because they're, they're not used to going that slow-mo. And we kind of do it on purpose to get them to kind of, you know, it rocks them a little bit, but then we explain it, we unpack why. And then when they see that they can have a little bit more of a step, a few steps back, before they jump into strategic action or they yeah. want to reflect what the next six months or next year looks like, it's much better to do it from that way rather than this running like a rocket straight. Yeah. I, I can envision you uh, you know, locking up the post-its at the start of your workshop or something, and the leader is very nervously wanting to jot lots of things down and and post them all over the walls, but they're not allowed to. So brilliant. Um no, I mean, I, I think the busyness trap fits in with what we've already discussed. Um, this idea that in 
especially in in the Anglo-American culture, but this has been globalized a bit. Uh, you know, we we often fail to judge output and productivity and simply look at how busy, maybe not even how busy people are, but how busy they appear to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same holds true for for leaders and leadership. I think just um, like this study I cited that. Um, Know, shows we 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 assume the person who speaks the most uh, has the most leadership potential. The same is true for for busyness. So the people who are doing the most, whatever that might be, um, we assume that they are have the most leadership uh, potential. So that's definitely um, something to watch out for, and good for you for slowing people down. But I can see that that could get quite uncomfortable. So. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's you, a challenge. <laughs> you know what? One of the insights, one of these uh, uh, strategy sessions we've done uh, some time ago with, with a group of leaders, team of operations team in big company. And one of the, one of the, um, the managers came later on, had an insight and said, you know, what's interesting. Now I'm thinking that half of this, because operations is usually really hectic and there's always something going on and they can never leave their phone and they have to be online all the time. And she said, you know, now I'm thinking, I think we also create lots of these challenges just because it makes us feel good when we solve them. (laughs) Brilliant insight. Brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think I think space and unstructured time beyond just leadership. There's a lot of studies that that essentially document. You know, if you want to live a productive life, you have to schedule some unscheduled time into your week and go for walks without any purpose and or runs or whatever whatever does the trick for you. And you know, simply staring at the computer all day is not gonna not gonna help you finish that book or whatever you're working on. You have to get away from it. For the ideas to come. Yeah, yeah. Is there any other traps uh, that we can mention here? So we mentioned the 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 loudness and and talking, uh, and then we we mentioned business. Uh, is there any other traps that 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 leaders could be more aware of? There's something actually that um, Adam Grant sent me after he read the book. He sent an article that he recommended, and it it's. Um, by some colleagues of his, I'd have to look up uh, who precisely because um, it escapes me at this point. And uh, but they talk about the plunging in bias, which is essentially that there's a tendency to start solving problems before we understand them. Mm. Um, but all of these are kind of in the same boat, right? It's about reactive loudness, action, uh, and um, not taking time, giving space, uh, being quiet every now and then. The other thing that springs to mind as well is the lack of focus that we see generally. And, you know, I'm guilty of it. We're all all right, but because digitization and the way the world is right now. But whenever we speak to teams of leaders and companies, that's one of the first things they tell us that they're struggling to read books anymore. They're struggling to do research if they're involved in some massive program. There, there's always something else, something shiny, something new, or not even that. They, I mean, even researchers that we speak to as part of the Euro, European Innovation Council, they're, they're telling us that they just 
they don't feel like they can get deep enough into the research anymore. Whereas, you know, a year or two years past, they could read two or three books at once. They barely get through the one. Mm. What's your take on that? Do you see that in your work? I mean, it, it, it I don't know if this is a, a, a trajectory that we go through individually through our careers and we also reach kind of a burnout uh, stage or a mild burnout where we're less able to handle as much as we used to, or if circumstances, our work environment is changing, probably a little bit of, of both. If I speak for me personally, and this is going in a slightly different direction, I mean, the, the, the thing that's most toxic to my focus, concentration, and productivity is definitely my, my iPhone. Mm. And, and um, I, I notice this most starkly when I think back to when I wrote my my dissertation, which then became my, my first book in this was between 20, 2010 and 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 twelve. I was insanely productive because I just I just I mean I had a, I had a cell phone, but it was you know not a smart one, and I wasn't on any social media, so I would just sit down and and write all morning, and I'd go for walks and stuff, but it was it was possible, and. Um, I find that quite challenging now and I really have to be hard on myself to put my phone away and not check LinkedIn and everything else and then you know the turn off the automatic emails and um so we're we're not you know I, I'm not certainly not the first to point this out but uh I do notice with myself that I fall into that trap quite often of being way too easily distracted and then uh, yeah I can't read as many books as I used to or write as much as I used to Mm. Yeah, it's, it's a challenge. I mean, we don't have the answer either, you know, but what, again, what we point our clients to quite often is to take a step back and think about, you know, what is it that's getting in the way? And exactly that. For some people, it can be as simple as rudimentary as locking your phone in a box and making sure that if that's the time to do your research or to write some pages for your book, the phone is not in the room, you know, for some people that that, that kind of works. But it's not just phones. I mean, we see people, you know, there's a choice. There's a choice that comes into play. You know, you could come home and, and the challenge is if you've been working all day and you've got another job or you've got a, a passion project, usually you, you might not have the capacity or you feel tired. But then we see people go on Netflix all night for the next three or four, five, six hours. Whereas if you just spent a few hours doing what it is you're passionate about versus binging <laughs> series then maybe you might get some more done yeah and i think people have to find the the hacks or the methods that that work for them um i mean i i i find you know a, lo a lot of it is about getting into routine and developing good habits so you know if i've spent 30 days in a row getting up early writing i tend to write in the morning before the mm -hmm. kids wake up and before i go to work i have one of those jobs too where when i'm at work i don't actually do a lot of work <laughs> i have to do it in the you know, fit, fit it in. Of, of course, I, I do things, but it's yeah. lots of committees and meetings and these things are all important, but it's not the projects I'm, I'm passionate. Mm -hmm. So I have to fit those in um, on the fringes of my day. And if I get in the habit, um, you know, then the 31st day is not really that challenging, but it's always that first day to get, get back into that writing mindset. And I think that's true of anything. You know, if you haven't run for seven years, the first day of training for a marathon is going to yeah. Take a lot of it. Yeah, yeah be, be painful, be painful. But um, 
Yeah, it is interesting. And I think it's always, I mean, with, with all the stress and, and, and amount of information we are, we are getting and, and the news all the time. And I think, you know, Peter mentioned entertainment. I think our brains just want to go on to some mode where you don't have to think. It's, it's, it's that story again, we were talking on the beginning, you know, something that you get sucked into and your life, your problems do not exist in that moment. Yeah, it's escapism, right? Mm. I mean, that has a, has a time and place as well. Yeah. Good movies and TV shows and, and, um, but, uh, yeah, life was, was easier when you could just watch one episode a week and it was at the <laughs> time. Again, Netflix and everything else, uh, it is quite tempting to go all out. Yeah. So, okay. So we spoke about what leadership isn't and is. But when we look at the leader for the future, uh, and, and based on what we know, who is that person? Like, what are some of the uh, attributes of that person? How they behave? How they look? You know, if we could create an avatar of, of somebody like that. I'm just, just curious. I think in terms of how they look, um, ideally, if, if organizations continue to develop, I mean, Peter, I know you do a lot of work with um, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, and so if this continues, then um, a leader can look like anybody. Mm, yeah. Um, I mean, that's already the case in some organizations. Um, and, and, you know, presumably and hopefully that will become the norm. How do they, be, how do they behave or what, what competencies do they bring to the table? I don't know that the world today um, demands like a different set of behaviors or competencies than than they ever have in 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 the past or they do now. I think it's these things we've already talked about: humility, an ability and willingness to learn, to grow, a certain level of confidence. That you can stand by your decisions, but also if you do have to put other people in the spotlight, you don't you don't feel like you're losing out. You know, so confidence versus large ego, and and then I think you know there there there's a lot of things we we know that aren't even controversial. I mean, emotional intelligence and and uh, a, a certain certain amount of good communication skills. I think will will always be necessary. You can have all the right ideas and see the connections, uh, but if you can't convey technical information in a simple way, but also persuade people. So both both the, the kind of technical and the persuasive communication are key. I, I think the list goes on, right? There's but but I think we know we know what these things are. I think it's more a matter of being able to accept leaders who look different from the the classical loud, rash white male. Uh, and also becoming better at, at um, you know, training and developing leaders in all these facets. Because I think most of us are strong in some areas. Maybe you're a really good communicator, but your emotional intelligence isn't as high or the other way around. And I think that's where people like, like you come in, who are doing mm. your good work. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love what you said there. I mean, the future of leadership, what it sounds like, if history's taught us anything, is there's nothing new out there. It's just that the kind of skills that we need to develop are the ones that are actually not in the spotlight, right? 
And that's it, you know, listening to understand, you know, that's not shouting from the rooftops or, you know, blind self-promotion or dog-eat-dog competition. Not that competition's bad, right? You know, you need that in a business if you're going, sorry, going to make profit and the like. But competition just against each other is the opposite of creativity and collaboration, right? So it's really just look into history and to books, you know, that you've written, for example, and thinking, right, okay, if that's always been there in history, what can we do to put that right? How can we make sure that people who are unassuming, who are not into selfless, blind self-promotion, how can they be given the opportunity to shine in the world. And that's that's our take on it. Because actually, Mira and I were asked to do a couple of um, workshops and programs this year about the future of leadership. And it got us thinking, we were like, because mm, we were looking for something new and shiny, and we just didn't find it, you know? Right. It, it's really relearning. It's 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 unlearning what we thought leadership was, and actually with humility, seeing what, it, and then having bravery to do that because all these old um, ways of so I don't know if I can call it that way have been so ingrained in our minds, in our belief systems that uh, that it takes some bravery and and discomfort and and being vulnerable to actually do things differently. I think the other bit that's missing in leadership we see quite often is integrity, having a backbone. And if I'm honest, that cost me my career at some point, even though I didn't care, really care about my career. I was lucky that I've always had a side hustle and I've been you know, a musician and the like. Maybe that's what saved me because I just knew in the back of my mind I wouldn't be the next CEO of this company. Mm. That was something that kind of, that was my survival, I don't know, but... What yeah. I notice quite often is there was a massive disconnection between what people say and then the action. And yeah. that's what usually denigrated trust, credibility, it lessened impact. And it's as simple as if you say what you do, and then if you put your hand up when things are wrong, even though it is vulnerable and you feel a bit silly and whatever, your team will love you for it. And we see that the most impactful leaders can say, hey, I got it wrong. I know I said I would do this yesterday. It hasn't happened. I got busy. I was getting pressure from above from my manager. I am sorry. And that's probably the most impactful thing we can teach anyone to do in leadership because we sadly don't see it as often as we should. Yeah. yeah. Brilliant. Yep. Cool. Last thing, I'm curious. Did you not say, Martin, that you were going to do a TED Talk in Berlin? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will be doing a TED Talk in Berlin, indeed, at the end of, um, at the beginning of next month. Yes. Mm. And what will be the topic for this one? Uh, it, it's essentially the, the short version of the book, you know, why, why we celebrate the wrong leaders and the horrific consequences that come from that fact. Cool. That's not the title yet, but something like that yeah okay. now i'm excited to come back to berlin i i had the great pleasure of uh living there for a short time many years ago and um i haven't been back in years so yeah maybe maybe we'll see each other in person in berlin well hopefully that would be a, that would be great yeah it'd be great to see you in person so before we close this one thank you this has been a great episode you know where, where we've gone with this i'm sure our listeners will like this a lot is there any parting wisdom, anything you want to say just to end it? 
it's always it's always tough to, to <laughs> give the final words of wisdom. Uh, maybe one thing I think so. I do I do a lot of running, and there's a lot of science on how to train smarter and become faster and develop your endurance. Um, but at the end of the day, one of my favorite runners he said, "Running is an experiment of one." Right. You have to you have to read all this stuff because you can't figure it out on your own what to eat and the training volume and your cadence and all this stuff. But you have to try it out, and some of it will work, and some of it will not work for you. And I think, just like running is an experiment of one, so is leadership. There's so much advice out there, uh, a lot of robust studies about what you should do and shouldn't do. But at the end of the day, you know you are a unique person, and you know only you can figure out what actually works for you. You have to take the step to try to figure that out. But once you do, you know, you are an experiment of one. And and that I think can be a lot of fun. This is well. great. That's a great way to end. Thank you. Because that's exactly how we see it. And we're really careful that when we when we're in, for example, mentoring mode and someone says, Hey Peter, you've had more mileage than me, what would you do in this situation? I always say with a caveat, well, if I just told you what I did last time, that was like 10 years ago. I'm not quite sure that's going to save you right now. Let's explore your options and exactly that experiment. Let's see the role of leadership as permanent beta, right? Because yes, you can look at history, you can reach out and you can have a support network, but quite often you'll have to try many things before that's a really good fit for you, if that makes sense. Mm. Wonderful. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, great. This has been a wonderful episode. Thank you very much, Martin. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Mira and Peter. It was a great pleasure. Thanks a lot.